Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy and Jose Shankman, a former UChicago faculty member now holding posts at Columbia University and Princeton University, elaborate on the experience of being an economist at University of Chicago, evaluate recent trends in the global economy, and highlight ways in which economic thinking can be more broadly applied to a wide range of problems. Hello, Jose. Welcome back to Chicago. Thank you, Kevin. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, you know, you've maintained your ties to Chicago ever since you were here, and and I want to talk to you a little bit about your experience in Chicago and, and how sure. it's affected your career and mm -hmm. talk to you about your general approach to research and some specifics of your research. So sure. why don't you tell me a little bit of what Chicago was like when you first got here? You know, I arrived at Chicago as very young. I had just turned 25 or so. And uh, Chicago was then a very, uh, I would say the word may be scary place, both um, in the sense that you arrived here and there were all these names that you heard about all your life, and they're all here. And so that was a very, very, uh, um, it was an experience for a young assistant professor, especially someone like, like me who went to a smaller graduate program, a very good one, but very small, and went through it very fast. So when I arrived at Chicago, I had a very good, um, I have very good knowledge of certain parts of economics, but I had big holes. And Chicago for me is a kind of a second graduate school. So I arrived here and I learned not only from the senior faculty, the very impressive senior faculty, George Stigler, Milton Friedman, Gary Becker, Bob Lucas came in a, a little bit later, but also from the, my colleagues, junior colleagues, and, and also the students, many of them who knew more economics than I did, like you. <laughs> Anyway, I, you're being very generous. I, I certainly remember you as a teacher when I first came here and, and the influence you had on me. How did being at Chicago change your style of research or how you approached economics? What did you learn from being at Chicago? You know, one great advantage at Chicago is that nobody was thought to be a specialist. And you couldn't hide on being a specialist. During the lunches we had at that couldn't say that's outside my area. Across, across <laughs> the hall. I couldn't say this is not my area. That's not something I know about. So people would be discussing the topic and all of a sudden someone like Milton Friedman would ask for your opinion. And you better have something to say at that point. So that in some sense forced me to understand that economics is just one subject, you know, and what you had tools and you should be able to analyze almost any economic problem if you thought of it the right way. Not even the separation between macro and micro, which was very strong at that time, was that strong at Chicago. You know, people were always talking about both things at the same time and understanding that you needed microeconomic basis for a lot of what you said in, 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 in macroeconomic discussion. Of course, that was not the style of the time. It became much more. And so that idea, having people all of a sudden taking you seriously when you, when, you, when, you, when you said something about something which is not what you're doing your, your research at that point, uh, forced you to learn a lot. Forced you to go to seminars, I even to set through some classes, and, but also I participate, I think you learn a lot at Chicago just by talking to people. And one amazing thing about Chicago is that everybody was around and everybody had their doors open. I never felt I couldn't go into somebody's office and ask a question. And of course I had, as I said, we mentioned the senior people, but also junior faculty at the time included, you know, he was a little older than me, Jim Hackman was here, he had a, and uh, people like that, which, which from whom I could learn a lot from. Now you mentioned one divide, which is micro-macro and the role Chicago played in, in some ways in breaking down that divide and showing what could be learned across the two, the two areas. There's another divide that people often think about in economics, which is a distinction between theory on the one hand and applied work on the other. Yes. And when I look at your work, it seems to me you're sort of the poster child for somebody who really knows how to do theory, but at the same time 
knows how to apply it to real problems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, sure. Part of what I think is fun about economics is exactly that if you take your theory seriously, you can look at a lot of interesting applied problems with it. That is, if you don't think of doing theory as refining some theoretical result which is out there, but we think are new about problems, and then using thinking of the problems and thinking of how can I build a theory to explain that problem. And so that interaction, we use a theory you know to attack problems, you look at problems to bring into to bring a new theory, I think is extremely fruitful. It has been, for me, the, the biggest pleasure in my career is that's what I like to do. I can give you an example. As you know, I've been interested in, in financial market bubbles for a while. So yesterday, my first year, day here at BFI, I gave a talk at the math department. I gave a talk at the math department on some of the mathematical problems I've been working on uh, to um, understand better how financial bubbles occur. So that interplay between a very practical problem and a very theoretical side is what I think I learned at Chicago, because at Chicago there were a lot of people doing things like this, doing this kind of approach, you know, thinking of applied problems, but in using very good either theory or very good empirical methods, very sophisticated empirical methods to solve these problems. And at the same time, they were progressing the frontier of theory and empirical methods to solve particular applied problems. I think people like Bob Lucas very much like that, Jim Heckman very much like that, some of your own work is very much like that. So this is the kind of thing that you learn at Chicago that you should be able to do. Uh, two things I want to pick up on that, and one is I want to link together two of the things you just talked about. Uh, you mentioned going to lunch and hearing you know, Milton or Gary or somebody talk about a problem they were interested in. How did that affect you in terms of research areas that you ultimately worked in? Or, you know, I know you've worked on a whole range of problems. And to what extent did kind of the fertilization by talking to people like that affect what you did? I think a lot. I think because you, what you hear from those, from in conversations like that, were actual problems that people are trying to understand. So I think, for instance, uh, the work I, I've done with my former student, Ed Glazer, on cities or social interactions. You can see Gary behind that story. You can see the conversation we have had with Gary or things that I heard from Gary Becker. And Bob Lucas was also very interested in cities and how externalities operate and so on. So you can listen, you can almost see that these conversations occurred when you read those papers. Yeah, that, so that, that's, that's one side of it as well. But another side I want to pick up in addition to that, because I think that's important, is the idea that there isn't this big division between, call, let's call it applied theory, that is theory sure. that can be applied in, in highbrow theory, high maybe on the other theory. side. And yeah. there's a tendency for people to say, well, this stuff is useful and this stuff isn't useful. Right. And I think that's not correct. And I just wanted me if you could yeah. talk a little bit. Evidently, all those people had this idea that the theory in economics serve a purpose. And the person was to understand the economy, understand economic phenomena, or sometimes even more broadly social phenomena in general. So this was an attitude in all, not only in the conversations, but also in the work those people did. So I think, I think the senior people were here, they taught me a lot in those conversations. They taught me a lot when I went to their offices and showed work and discussed with them. And, um, but also, they taught me a lot just by reading their work. You know, we had workshops and people would present their work and so on. And you can see this, 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 this very Chicago attitude that sometimes uh, the theory had, had a purpose of explaining actual economic problems. It was not just done to refine, uh, you know, what somebody else did with like weaker assumptions. That's, that's really what, uh, what uh, what um, I learned all through my career here. And Chicago has lots, had a lot of those people at the time and still has them. You know, people like Lars or Jim or you, you know, they all engage in this type of, or even people that came here after I left, like Myerson and so on. So there's a lot of people thinking of theory or theoretical problems and trying to use them to solve you know, actual economic problems, but at the same time, pushing the frontier of theory or pushing the frontier of, of empirical methods. So we shouldn't always think of theory that maybe at the moment seems kind of hard or abstract or 
very rigorous is orthogonal or unrelated to applied no, work. No, it's not. It's not unrelated to applied work. And, and, and let me tell you this, even when I did very applied work, you know, of course, when you're doing very applied work, you're not thinking about the theory in, in this abstract fashion. But I, I tend to think that my, the way I look at applied work always used a lot of what I knew about theory. You know, even when I did, when I'm talking about work, which is not even academia, when I was trying to think about how, how Brazil could be a better place economically, or when I tried to think about how, um, you know, to think about hedging securities at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I was going to ask you, that was my next topic, actually. I wanted to ask you about Goldman Sachs. When you, when you went from Chicago and you went to Goldman Sachs for a while and then came back to Chicago, I want to talk to you a little bit about what that transition was like, what you took away from Chicago that when you got to Goldman Sachs, how that, what you could add to, to a place like Goldman Sachs, who obviously was, had a lot of very good, very smart people, but they still needed to come to somebody like you for yeah, adding a piece to the puzzle. That was interesting because as you may know, at that point, I had practically done no work in finance. So later I did much more work, you know, as a finance theorist and also applied work in, you know, also empirical work in finance. But at that point I had done no finance almost. I had written a couple of papers that you could perhaps generously say had something to do with finance, the stuff I did on chaotic dynamics, which has some applications to finance, et cetera. But that was all I, knew I had done about finance. So. I was actually surprised when I got approached by Goldman Sachs, and I remember asking a very senior person that was interviewing me, I said, look, if you look at Chicago, there are at least a dozen people I can think of who know much more finance than I do. So why are you guys interested in hiring me? And they said, look, we want somebody with a fresh perspective, somebody who really understands theory very well, you have a reputation for a theorist, and can think problems from fresh. And that's in some sense what I brought to Goldman Sachs. It is that I did not have the knowledge to actually just do the stuff a little better than what they did. I couldn't do that. I had to think of problems from start to start with. Now, without giving away any secrets, what were you able to teach them at Goldman Sachs? And what, 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 what were they missing that somebody coming out of academia with your background could add? Well, you know, I think that I, I don't want to know that they were all missing because there were people there who knew who knew different things. You know, but I was lucky you enough to go a into little, a group. You know, it's okay. <laughs> God, I was lucky enough to be placed on a group which had Bob Litterman, who was an extremely good. He was, you know, largest colleague at Minnesota, and when they were students together, he was extremely well trained as an empirical in empirical methods, very well trained in empirical methods, and. Larry Wise, who was a kind of a very smart young economist, more from the macro side and so on. And so we could think of, 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 of we, we started thinking about the three of us, we all kind of in the same position, more or less. We didn't really know what did we know that was useful for Goldman Sachs, but we're put in this group. And um, so we started very early on thinking about how the firm was hedging their fixed income portfolio. And at that time, there was a very, um, uh, um, a very uh, well-established way of looking at duration of, of bonds and trying to find how much duration risk you had. And if you think of bonds the way you think about aerodebris securities, and you also use methods that economists have used, factor models and so on, we kind of figure out a better way of doing that, where you look at other factors beyond you know, duration of bonds. And that's what we proposed, that was one of the first things we did. And this is something that was nice because we wrote a paper and the paper has had, a, you know, it's a well-cited paper among financial economists because that inspired people to think anew how do the evolution of interest rates come, come through. So normally when people do models of interest rate evolution, they have to think about does that fit the facts that Littman Schenkman figure out with their factor analysis. Okay, so you, you go to Goldman Sachs, you help yeah. Goldman Sachs. Now, you also do policy-related work. Much later, yeah. Much later in your life, yeah. but again, not something that was necessarily tied directly to things you had written papers on. And I mean, I've, I've talked to you various times about policy. Yeah. And 
So when economist goes to do policy and somebody with your background who has that range of technical and applied work in their background, how do you approach policy when they could come up with questions from all different areas? Well, it's not very different the way I think one should approach economics. We should start with a problem. You start with a problem and think, do I have the tools to think about that problem? So some things I was, was kind of easy because there's a well-established literature that you could go to and say what do people have thought about that problem have contributed and, and then try to adapt to the circumstances in Brazil and so on. Some things are very price theoretic and you can think of them from scratch even though you know any good economist should come to the same conclusion if you think about the way markets work and so on and incentives and how to adapt it. And then things were more subtle. Uh, as you know, we talked about this. Uh, Brazil has a very big crime problem. And there, I think I was somewhat helped by some of the ideas of my own work on social interactions and so on, but also some other ideas I had to come up with uh, to think about the importance of certain types of, of substitution. We've talked about that, about substitutions within crime so that a, less, a crime which is less violent gets committed instead of a crime which is more violent. And that kind of substitution can help society a lot, even though sometimes it's very hard to lower the overall amount of crime. That's particularly true in drug traffic and so on, where I think it's very hard to combat drug traffic, but you can make it harder for people to have certain modes of operation that lead to a lot of violence and make it relatively easier for him to have modes of operation at least less violence than we talked about. So that. yeah, so I mean, and that, that's a good example where thinking about it from an economic standpoint of saying, these are the behaviors that you can change, these are the ones that are more difficult to change. We call it in economics less elastic or whatever. Right. I mean, clearly economics plays a big role in those kinds of, in those kinds of problems. And, and I, I learned a lot from your discuss, discussions with you about um, Brazil in that regard. I think there's a lot we can learn in the United States and Mexico and other places to try to combat what I think is a major social, uh, a social issue. So you mentioned a term in there that I want to get back to, which is price theory. Yeah. And that's kind of a Chicago term. Exactly. How do, how, how do you think about price theory? What, what kind of delineates it, or does it need to be delineated? Well, first of all, I don't think it really needs to be delineated, because in some sense, you can, use, you can use the term in a very elastic fashion, in my opinion. But usually you're thinking about things that are being mediated by prices and by incentives. So it's different than, kind of, than another approach, which could be very useful in certain circumstances, a more game-theoretic approach, we're thinking about individual interactions where I'm thinking what you're gonna do and you think about what I'm gonna do and you think about interacting with the market as a whole. So you're thinking about more of a market approach to a thinking more of about a market the world. approach about thinking about the world and there's lots of problems which I think that's extremely useful. That's the right way to think about. So like illegal drugs would be an example. Illegal where drugs would be an example where I think the market approach is very important, both on the side of what determines the price of illegal drugs, how much illegal drugs they've produced and so on, but also, as we talked, and in Brazil I thought a lot about it, how do different societies lead to different methods of distribution of drugs? So some societies have what I like to call the dentist model, where the drug dealers knows personally the buyers and so on, and they have very personal relationship. Another model where you have what I call the supermarket model, where there are places where drug dealers dominated people going to buy. And as I argued, and I think we, we agree on this, the, the, the second model is more, much more prone to violence. Because as I tell policymakers in Brazil, if somebody kills my dentist and calls me and says, you know, I killed your dentist, would you come? Let me Buy drugs for me instead. Get <laughs> no, your you, teeth for you, me instead. You take care, take care, <laughs> let me take care of your teeth. I'm not going to do that, right? Uh, but when I go to a supermarket, I don't know who, do, who is the shareholder who now owns the supermarket. You know, I know the supermarket is there. I know there's stuff for me to buy. And I don't really care who are the owners of that supermarket. I don't even know that. So there's competition in both cases, but the competition is in different, takes it different forms. Takes different forms. So the other one, the guy kills, and now he owns a supermarket. I don't even know how he, who owns the supermarket. But and and I, in a society, I'm really worried about the second type has a lot of externality because when drug dealers kill other drug dealers, they don't only kill other drug dealers. They usually, 
at least in Brazil, they have a battle, and the battle usually kills a lot of other people besides the drug dealers which are fighting for the turf. So let me, let me, let me try to understand that a little bit and then ask you a little more about that, because as an economist approaching policy, I think what you're saying, and one way I would interpret what you're saying is, we, we direct a policy, we want to reduce drug consumption. And people react to that. You know, yeah. they're not just gonna say, okay, fine, you've outlawed drugs, so no more drugs. No more drugs. It, doesn't, it doesn't work doesn't that work way. It has way, to change yeah. people's actions, and it puts in play a series of incentives. And right. small differences in how we structure the policy could lead to very different incentives. And like even your example, the reduction. <clears throat> even though, even both, though the overall drug consumption doesn't change that much. Right, exactly, and even they could be equally effective at reducing drug consumption, but yeah. very different in terms of crime. The crime, yeah. But we, isn't that true of policy generally? Like when we talk about taxes, tax it's policy. It's also true of tax policy, it's true of everything, but it's, you know, those are more, tax is a domain which economists have kind of taken care of for a long time. Maybe not always thought the right way, I agree with you, but it's an economics question. But when you say, look, the economics approach to crime has something to tell about how much violence there will be with drugs. It kind of surprises people that you tell them, non-economists. I think an economist can, should be able to come to You're being too to generous conclusion. to economists, I think. I think yeah. to, to some people naturally always think about incentives. Right. Unfortunately, I think sometimes economists yeah. Love to talk about incentives when it comes to taxes and other things, and then they often they forget, forget about, about the incentives other stuff. Yeah, yeah. when it comes to social policy yeah. or drug policy or... Right, exactly. No, I agree completely with you. I think that one of the things which is important is this idea that incentives operate at many different levels and in many different occasions and many different problems, for many different problems. And thinking about them, and especially thinking about not only the direct question that some people ask you, you know, I tell you, the question of violence is often not asked just on the, on the and it just, just doesn't affect drugs, but I'm convinced in a place like Brazil that drug trade is very responsible for a lot of the violence. So if you could diminish the violence in the drug trade, you, you achieve an overall lowering of violence in the whole society. And uh, there's, when I say I'm convinced, I think there's a lot of data both about the age of the people who gets, the locality where violence occurs, the age of people that gets affected by violence and so on, that seem to indicate that a lot of it is related to the drug trade. It's not the only source. A lot of husbands kills their wives because they, they drink or something like that. And by the way, even that, you could think about economic strategies to, to, to lower it. Let, let me give an example. In Colombia, uh, a mayor came up, which I thought was a brilliant idea, of closing bars on paydays. Okay, and he had a, they, they achieved a very a very substantial lowering of family violence. That's interesting. It's I mean, an interesting you, point, but it, you know, it's not that people it's going to affect overall drinking. Probably they're going to drink the next day. You know, the effect on the, but that concentration. They had all their cash in their hands and drinking a lot, and then fighting with their wives when they get drunk and spend all the money from the payday. That one source of fight goes away, and you lower the amount of violence of that type of violence. So again, so when you think about applying economics to policy, it seems to me you say. One, what does an economist bring to the table? Incentives. Yes. Yeah, that's one. Um, what about the notion, and I know it's something you've worked on a lot in your, in your uh, research career, which is the idea of equilibrium, that somehow we have to get, there's an equilibrium that's going to be out there, and if I establish it, we're going to have to get to a new equilibrium. Yes. You got any examples yes, or lessons I... about that? Yes, this, by the way, is something, in terms of applied work, I learned a lot from you on that point. I think that's the way you always think about problems. You always think about how the new equilibrium is going to look like and so on. But I do think that if you think about incentives, you, can, you have to think, we just had this discussion, you have to think of people's reactions to that. So I, ha I give you an example. Uh, the governor of Rio uh, tried to use, not because only of my advice, but other people advise him, it was important to control these areas in which drug dealers were dealing drugs without any, any 
presence of the state. You know, this was a common thing. Even in the U American cities sometimes had phases like that. And the argument I was giving was this one about areas like that are prone to be disputed with violence, and that's where a lot of violence is gonna occur. So that was my argument. Other people gave different arguments. Sometimes just say, it's a scandal that the state is absent from, a, from an area and people can just trade drugs without any fear of the state and so on. So there's a lot of different, different uh, reasons for that. But he did that and he was somewhat successful. Then, just by chance, reading the internet, I found this sociology master thesis, which kind of complaining that one of the effects of this, of, this, of this policy was that now a lot of young students were involved with drug dealers. And the thesis was about, she had inquired people where they bought drugs, and now they're buying drugs from other students. So it says students now became drug dealers. Now, for me, that was a positive outcome. That was a good part of the equilibrium. Um, but I mean, this person didn't understand it. She thought that that happened just out of, she understood it was connected to the policy, but she didn't understand there was a better equilibrium than the past one. But that's exactly about thinking about equilibrium. You know that there are gonna be consequences. There's gonna be entry into that business because people demand drugs. But the entrants are less likely to use as much violence as the other ones because violence is not gonna be as good for them. Maybe they're not as capable of doing violence, but also violence is not gonna be as effective for them because of the story of the dentist. Because somebody, people were buying drugs from people they knew. Okay, now, so the notion of equilibrium I think is very important. How things we equilibrate and understanding how that's gonna play out. Now you mentioned when you got to Chicago, people like George Stigler were here. And, and yeah. one of the things George always talked about was the role of, of a real a view of government as an as an equilibrium outcome like not what do they want to do but what's going to end up happening when the government gets involved and regulation yeah. and how regulation plays itself out mm -hmm. what's been your practical experience with regard to kind of that view I of think, the world? I think policymakers often don't think about that. So there's a lot of things that get done because they only think about like the first stage. You know, well, if I raise these taxes, I should get more money. That's the first stage. Now, they didn't think about the incentives, to, like in Brazilian society, for instance, the incentives that creates for informality. And so they always forget this, and, and as a result, they could actually, you know, I'm very doubtful of Laffer curve here in, in the United States, but a much, I've seen much more cases where at least, I wouldn't know if you get a left recovery if taxes actually go down, but certainly the amount of taxes you collect is much smaller than what you first intended. The first exercise was saying, well, people are paying 10 million of taxes. If I now raise from 10 to 11%, I'm gonna collect 11 million of tax. And that view is usually wrong. And the more society has more outlets, so in Brazil we have, um, it's relatively easy to be informal, so lots of firms go into informality when you raise certain types of taxes and so on, or just make it difficult for certain to operate legally. And as a result, what you see on the other side is that firms tend to be too small and too inefficient because one of the ways that you can hide as an informal firm is to be small. So there's a lot of consequences to that and you always have to think about what does a policy that make it more expensive to operate, to operate formally, what does for instance, a tax, what does that cause to the economy as a whole? And I think my lesson studying the case in Brazil is that there's a lot of that going on, that policies are not thought well enough, and we have a lot of, a lot of these consequences. And of course, George was, you know, he did, even in his academic work, he pointed to a lot of these consequences, very important consequences, the regulation of railroads, for instance, and so on. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a good example because at the end of the day, those movements have an effect on revenues, but right. that may not even be their biggest effect on the economy. It may exactly. be the inefficiencies that result, exactly. the change in the size of firms, the type exactly. of industries that develop. That get developed. Brazil, I think, suffers a lot from that. We have a combination which is ideal to have bad consequences. We have very high nominal rates and relatively little enforcement. Now, when you combine the two, I mean, you can see what you're gonna end. You're gonna end up with a lot of informality. I, I, in discussions in Brazil, I usually say, if you wanna maximize informality, what you do is create a Brazilian system. You create very high rates and, and little enforcement. 
But then sometimes the solutions are also very bad. I, I give you an example. So one solution that, that uh, was, was done in Brazil re relatively recently is to say, okay, we have a problem with informality of small firms. We're going to create a special, easy uh, system for small firms. It's going to be a cap. Any firm below that is going to have what they, what they call the simple, which really is the simple system. Okay? Once you get above that size, you're out of there. So what have you done? You kind of formalize a lot of firms, but you have not eliminated any of the bad consequences because the bad consequences were primarily the firms were too small. Before, firms were too, too small to hide from the tax man. Now they're too small not to be subject to, to a very the complicated tax. system. <laughs> to hide from the tax, exactly. So, so now they're perfectly legal, but we have exactly the same problems with inefficiency. And now not thinking about what are the incentives you're creating? So you're creating an incentive, and people now have verified that this is done by, by either by this different method, but most of it is by the amount of total sales. And you get, of course, as you'd expect, a grouping of firms that you don't expect just below the threshold, an enormous grouping. Those are the same. So lots of firms got off of informality, but they did not eliminate their inefficiencies. And we have the same problem in Brazil that we had before. But that's something an economist, I would have thought, a good economist, you know, somebody thinking about incentives, could have told them beforehand. Yeah, so it wasn't the informal versus formal label that was the major consequence of exactly. the policy. It right. was the inefficiencies, Inefficient. which you, you institutionalized almost by putting in this by new system. By putting this cap, this new system, yeah. And so now there's a new fight, which is, you know, to make at least a more smooth transition you know, which could ameliorate a little. It's not going to solve it. I mean, the, as I say, the, the thing is not to, to create a simple system for a small firm, but to simplify for everyone. That's the way that you eliminate that, that force. Now, one term you hear a lot in economics these days is behavioral economics. Yeah. And I know you have some association with behavioral econo yeah. economics, and, but yet you're a very traditional economist in many other ways. And how, how does that all fit together? Well, I think that the way to do it is that initially, and maybe that's the way it needed to be, behavior economics was an observation, was a bunch of observations. You observe an anomaly, you observe something that you say, well, I can explain that if people do X instead of Y. That may have been a useful first step, but that's not real economics. Real economics is thinking, okay, we have behavior, certain people that behave in certain way, they interact maybe with people that behave in a different way. What kind of market restrictions do I need to be able to explain us that certain phenomena occurs? So for instance, you know, Milton Friedman used to say in many different circumstances, I'm sure, but that, that um, you know, a few smart guys will get the prices right, right? And so that was based on the idea that you have a frictionless market. Now, we have a lot of evidence and there's good reasons for, good institutional reasons for, for instance, that shorting in some assets is a very uh, more, much more complicated process than the way we think, we economists think about. We usually think of shorting as buying a negative amount. And as I used to teach, when I used to teach for the Chicago MBAs, I says, if, I, if shorting was that easy, I have a very easy, it's very easy to become rich. You short treasury bills, which means you borrow at the rates the U.S. government borrows, which is a very low rate, and lend it right. to the banks, which are on top of guaranteed up to a certain amount by but the same U.S. government. But you're not the U.S. Treasury, unfortunately. But I'm not the U.S. <laughs> treasury, unfortunately. So people wouldn't give me credit at that rate. So there's no such thing as shorting a treasury bill. Um, there are things which look like you're short the treasury bills, but you pay a different interest rate and so on. So those are the kind of restrictions. And it's even harder when you talk about housing. You may have thought your house was during the bubble was too high priced, but how are we going to short your house? I may have thought you paid too much for your house, but I couldn't go out and say, I want to short Kevin Murphy's house, because I don't have Kevin Murphy's house to deliver when the people come to collect it. So that's the, that's the, the, the problem. So these interactions, in a, in, a, in a world like this, then, of course, the views of optimists and pessimists get weighted different, because optimists can just buy pessimists cannot short. So that's the kind of thing I think of modern, the, the, the useful way of using certain behavioral things. But you have to bring in the economics to think of all the other forces. So it's a change of an observation of anomalies to looking how people interact in the market when people have different 
behavioral patterns. Yeah, but I, I want to go after that a little bit because it sounds to me like your solution is, it's not a behavioral solution in the sense that this is an intimately tied to people's, quote, behavior. It's really about the characteristics of the market. I have a market Absolutely. where it's really easy to ship from point A to point B, but very difficult to ship from point B to point A. Yes. But that's that market's going to behave in a very different way. Yes, exactly. But that's all, uh, that's what economics in the end is, right? Economics, we start with certain postulates of, of individual behavior, and they could be the classical utility one or more behavioral one. I don't really care, depending what problem you're trying to think about. Uh, and then you add to that, how do they interact in a market? And as I said, there's certain circumstances you may want to interact like in a game theoretic way and so on, but my favorite mode of analysis are anonymous markets in which people are trying to all uh, um, um, facing prices and so on. But that's, you could use the other form of behavior, but that's really what economics is, when you have interactions and, and tastes and technologies and so on. So, and the interaction part is very important. And I think that that's a good thing that happened with behavior economics. If you take the, now the typical pu paper published in behavior economics, many of them already take this point of view and say, look, how, what kind of market restrictions should I think about that could generate this thing? And again, you're trying to explain a problem. As I said, the reason I got involved on, 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 on thinking of this behavioral, um, uh, let's suppose, this alternative to classical utility maximization and so on, or opera information use and so on, was that I was trying to understand these observed phenomena between bubbles and people trading a lot. And as you know, economists have a real hard time even explaining the amount of trading that happens in, the, in normal times. That's already hard for us because, you know, seems to be too much trading relative to what you think about the shocks that you would, uh, individuals should have. But then, of course, what happens during this, these, these bubble phenomena is that you get trading that is you know, maybe 30, maybe 100 times what normally happens. So you're kind of trying to understand why do those two things go together? Why do prices become apparently so different than, than what they should be exactly the time when people are trading a lot? So that's the kind of thing that you, this is the kind of guidance I've had. I've, 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 I've always thought of, of looking at facts and trying to think, well, how can I think of a theory that will explain these facts? So it sounds like you've developed a pretty good understanding of the fundamentals of markets that allow this to happen and why well, markets work in that way. But let, yeah. me, let, me, let me... I think I think I would not call pretty good understanding. I'm not happy with my own understanding of things. I was looking for... Let's say better than the alternative. Better, than, the, better than what I knew. I started working in this area in 2000, I would say, 1999, 2000, so better than I knew in 1999, I think I, I myself made some progress, yeah. Yeah, so I think you've made some progress in understanding. Yeah. Now, there's also a lot of loose talk out there about bubbles and all these sure. other things. Now, having reached that level of understanding, maybe it's not perfect, but you certainly think you've made progress, what's the lessons we take away? How does that... Let's go back to the policy world. Is there, is there something we so have to learn? One of the, the favorite policy? ones, yes. One, one thing we learned about policy. So when, when the financial crisis came, uh, and this was more common in Europe, by the way, uh, banking stocks, of, all over the world, banking stocks fell a lot and so on. What was the first reaction of European regulators? They made it illegal to short banking stocks. Now, assume that you were somebody who understood that the banking system was as I said, shorting is already a hard thing. And, but you understood the banking system was in trouble. And uh, you took a short position. Now it's illegal to short. You can't, you know, shorts is usually done for a certain amount of time. Maybe the market hasn't yet converged where you want. You have to renew your short. Now you can't do it anymore. So it was a lesson to people. So temporarily, of course, bank stocks went better. Shorts lost money. It was one more time where people learned that going shorting against the market may be dangerous because maybe the governments would intervene and make your life very hard. So that's one lesson which is very clear that this kind of ruling out shorting that they did um, was something I think very costly, not only for that case, but for the future because it's going to be less likely that people are going to short against consensus. 
Let me give you another example, which I think it's perhaps more controversial, but I like a lot when I tell my students. Before you go on, let's just make sure I understand that point, because this last point that you made seems to me comes up a lot, which is you have a policy that sort of ex post has one effect, that is after the fact, but you got to think about what's that going to mean for the future. That exactly. is, exactly. you know, I, you know, often it happens on the other side where you get into trouble. I say, no problem, I'll bail you out. Well, how does that affect your incentive to get in trouble in the first place? If you exactly. think, and this is a exactly. kind of an example that's in the opposite direction. It's in the opposite direction, but it's the same. It's the same thing. So let me give you another, perhaps more controversial, but I like a lot to tell my students about. As you know, the whole during the whole credit bubble, it was there were many people who thought that there was an overpricing housing and so on. That was not there were people had this opinion and that these securities were riskier than what the market was, was deeming them, the risk that people were attributing to that, that security. But it was very hard to short the securities. It was extremely hard to short securities until people kind of figure out something called the synthetic CDO, which was an, an innovation. And what the synthetic CDO was um, a way of creating I creating Tell mortgage. Is, for those who don't so, know what a CDO is. So a CDO, a credit afford, uh, a CDO, was a security that was based on mortgages. So there were mortgages, they were issued as mortgage with a package, and then they were tranched in different parts. And people would then would have the right to the first payments of this mortgage, people have the right to the second payment, so that changed the risk of the CDOs, of, of these trenches. So yep. each trench, if you had the right to first payments, you would get less risky than somebody had the right to the second payment. So the first payment rights, got very high ratings, the second payment rights people got also high ratings, and then the third tranche and the fourth tranche will get lower, range, lower ratings. As a result, there was a big market, banks, many European banks which are regulated this way, but also certain uh, US institutions were buying those securities that were, were, were rated AAA. And if you wanted to create more of the security, you had to build more houses in Arizona. That was basically the thing, because you had to have the mortgages, the mortgages to be, bundled and then created the CDO. What, and this was not Paulson creation, somebody else, uh, lots of people had this idea, it was a way of creating a CDO without building houses in Arizona, okay? So there was a contract that was all based on the behavior of certain mortgages, but they had no mortgages below it. Those mortgages were backing other stuff. This was just contract based on that. Now there's lots of people who say that this is what led to the blowout, the creation of the securities. I have a different view of that. I think if these German banks which, who wanted AAA securities based on US mortgages, we're gonna get them one way or the other. So the idea is people are gonna buy and sell securities that are tied in pricing to those AAA real securities. Real so securities. it's like saying, it's kind of like an ETF or something like that we'd have where I'm going to pay off based on S&P 500. Exactly. You don't really own the S&P 500, but the payoff on my assets is going to be the S&P 500. But here, the big, the, the big secret is to dress it in such a way they could be called a bond. Because a German bank could not buy a derivative security, but provided something was called a bond, they were okay. George Stigler rises again here. George Stigler <laughs> rises again. So that created something with a bond. Now, many people say this was a horrible thing. I actually think it was socially a pretty good thing. Why? Because what was the alternative? I think those German banks were going to continue to demand this stuff. So how are we going to get the bonds those German ba banks wanted, building more houses in Arizona? So they're like the so drug addicts who are going to get their drugs they're gonna they're gonna either from the exactly. violent guys or from somebody else. They're not exactly. going to stop taking drugs. They're not going to stop taking drugs. That's the point. And they wanted that. And so what we're going to end up is even more houses, abandoned houses in Arizona that we ended up with. Okay. Now, Arizona is pretty bad. Spain is even worse. Spain, you have even more houses that are still abandoned. But the fact of the matter is that it's clear there were too many resources going into building houses at that time. And if it wasn't for the people who had done the synthetic CDOs, we would have had even more resources going to those people. I mean, what's interesting that I see is this just incredible parallel between what you said about the drug marketplace before and what you just said about 
the CDO marketplace here in that your question is, is what's the alternative? Exactly. That is, these people exactly. are not going, I don't like this, and therefore, let's get rid of it without asking, well, something's going to take its place. Exactly. And is that thing that takes its place worse or better than what I don't like? Right. I might love a world in which this A didn't exist, but if they're going to move to B, which is even worse, not a great idea. And it seems to me that was your story for both drugs and, and it's the story, CBOs. you're absolutely right. And, but again, you know, I want to relate back to the bubble story. So what is that? What those guys were doing is creating a better way of shorting mortgages that didn't exist. So they were creating that way, and I think by doing that, my, my whole take on this is that shorting is a good thing, that most of the time, especially because they help avoid situations of this huge overvaluation of assets. If people had had this idea from the beginning, it, it is very likely that you have built even fewer houses. And so the real side of the, of the, of, of the, the, the real cost of the bubble will have been smaller. So this is again back to, again, I'll draw another parallel. It's like your Brazil example where the real cost was the firms were too small. Exactly. It wasn't that they were informal versus yes. not. Yes. So you're saying, Maybe we would still have a run-up in prices, but the real consequences would be lower. Be lower. Now, of course, in the bubble, we had other problems like banks got into trouble, and we know that when banks get into trouble, that's very costly for society. It was not only the overbuilding of houses, but certainly all those houses in Arizona, all those airports in Spain, and all those houses in Spain that were built without, you know, without a corresponding demand, all those things which were built basically because people buy them not to occupy them, but because we're speculating on them and so on, those things would have been less. Now, one question I hadn't thought about this before is this enhanced ability to short, of course, came about in a world in which prices had been run up quite high because that's where the demand yes. for shorting gets high. That's high. But obviously, introducing the ability to short at that point would have been much better to have the ability to, to have it earlier. But exactly. it seems like a market outcome is unlikely to lead to as much pressure to create that exactly. ability early. So the way, that's another thing I learned of thinking about bubbles and writing models, but also look at data. Bubbles don't end because people have an attack of rationality. They end because somebody figures out a way of creating what people want to buy. So we have data on this on the internet bubble, for instance. The number of companies that were called just had internet on their names, the number of companies that were not really doing much, but they could, sell stock and say, I'm selling you an internet-based stock and so on. So people, that's the supply. You know, one of our earliest, um, the term bubble actually comes from the South Sea Company, what we know, now know as the South Sea Company bubble, which is a bubble that happened in England in 1720. And the term bubble comes from the fact that people observe that people paying so much for stock of the South Sea Company, they say, why don't I create a company myself? And that's, these were called bubble companies because the terms comes, I think, from the fact that they had nothing behind them. They're like so bubble, they're just creation, you know? And that's where the term bubble originates. It's actually, it was used, it was not even a contemporary term, it's probably a later term, but it was describing these companies that were created at that time. So it's always the same. If people, if something sells for high price, people are going to try to create it. And if what's selling for high price are stocks of particular types of companies, they're going to create companies to sell, to sell that. And so this, you're absolutely right, is this is pressure of the market that always ends up the bubbles, either because they create things that satisfy demand, and part of it was all these houses that were built in Arizona were partly to satisfy the demand of the German banks for the securities. You could sell, you could borrow very cheaply for that. That's the thing. But part of it is because they do financial innovation. Now, this is an interesting, I mean, again, let's, I'm going to try it back to one other thing we talked about, which is price theory. And, and again, related back to behavioral economics, because one of the things to me that's always very important in price theory is to think about the supply side of the market. Exactly. Behavioral economics is, I don't want to put them in a box, but they've tended to focus on the demand side. Yet in many price, in many cases, at, at least in the end, the supply side really yes. is, is a dominant feature of, 
pricing of assets, pricing of products. That, exactly. you know, at the end of the day, exactly. the supply side is probably. Exactly. So what I see is that I, I don't want to, I think it's a, now there's a lot of people doing behavior economics, behavioral finance and so on. But in the side of finance, perhaps because finance economists like to think a lot about how firms act and so on, I think there has been a movement to decide. I think of trying to think about what are the market reactions. But you could think the same thing. You know, I think Ed Glazer wrote a paper already a few years ago on papers and proceedings, urging behavior economists to think about the supply side, urging people to say, well, you know, how would firm react? Because you know, if, you, if, if you've been involved in any kind of management, you know that people, traders, for instance, have some biases. And any hedge fund guy knows that their trader is going to have some bias, and he has to put in place, or any investment bank, you have to put in place certain rules of incentives to make sure that these bias don't lead to big losses. Don't lead to big losses. So lots of firms do that. They react to the bias. It's not that these bias, not they say those bias don't exist. They exist. They understand. There's this, but they also understand that they can do things to affect these biases. And I think that this idea that the market, in a, both in this context, you know, that firms react to what bias of their agents, you know, principals react to the bias their agents may have. And also, I think in markets where you know that people are going to take opportunities from situations in which they see assets that they can create at a lower price than what the market is trading for. But you know, that's a very Chicago question. I, can, I have to tell you this, uh, in the 80s, I remember having a conversation with Sandy Grossman about classical bubble models. You know, the kind of bubbles where people think about overlapping generation models and so on. And we having a conversation about why don't people just create this stuff? So it's a very Chicago, but at a point we're kind of just dismissing a certain type of literature. Uh, I later I started those thoughts, of course, you know, they stay in the back of your mind and at some point this came back in work I was doing with Wei Xiong and Harrison Hong, this idea that, you know, what does supply do to those models? How does supply affect uh, a bubble? And how do people thinking about supply and so on? And the speed with which supply can respond. And the speed at which supply can respond and so on. So in the, we thought, in the internet bubble, it was re were really the insiders. So the insiders sold a huge amount of stuff a huge amount of stock as soon as they could, you know, as soon yeah. as their lockups went out and so on. And you can see, I mean, people had already empirically noticed that, that there's a coincidence in days, we're not the first one to, to do that, there's a coincidence in days between the increase in supply and the bursting of the bubble. So now you, what Harrison Way and I did, it was trying to write down models that do that, and that's what led me to think a lot, well, but that's a very general phenomenon, it's not only the internet bubble. Almost any bubble you can think of, you look back, you see the supply response. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting, important observation. And again, it ties back. It ties back, yeah. And it gets, it's, it's funny because we started the conversation today by talking about when you came to Chicago, you learned that sort of some basic ideas kind of applied to a whole wide range of very different problems. In this case, drug dealing to, to the internet bubble to you know, the housing bubble to policy more generally. I mean, it just seems to me there's common themes running throughout everything you, you do. Yeah, it's here. a great way of thinking about society. You know, I think it's not just something to think about economics. I, like many economists, probably be accused of economic imperialism, but the fact of, of the matter is that <clears throat> it, is a, it, is a, it is a great way to think about society. And one thing I, I really think it's fun in economics, or at least the kind of career I've had, is that I've never been restricted to think about, you know, monetary, I don't want to diminish monetary policy. It's a very I don't understand question. monetary policy. But I, so that's something I still don't understand about monetary policy or, or antitrust or whatever it is that, that, you know, those are important problems. I don't want to, I don't want to diminish them. But it's kind of fun to think there's a lot of other things there you can think about. Uh, using the same tools. Okay, and then let me just wrap up with a couple of things. One, a little bit of personal questions about people you've worked with and just some observations. Obviously, Gary Becker passed away this past year and he's somebody you had a long association with. And how, what's your so thoughts? Let me tell you about Gary, which was always impressive. First of all, his support. 
you know, you could go into Gary's office with an idea and he would either tell it's junk and he would be the first to tell you this is not worth it. But if he liked the idea, he'd spend a lot of time with you trying to explain to you, you know, how to take that idea further and what he knew about that idea and so on. The second thing, which was always remarkable about Gary, is that, as you know, some of my work is quite technical. And I got comments on pretty technical stuff, not on the techniques, of course, but, you know, on the economics behind the techniques and so on, from some, in some pretty technical papers, where Gary would give me some notes or some ideas or come to me and talk to me after, uh, I, I, you know, he heard a talk or maybe I explained to him and so on. So that was something that Gary's work his own work, except sometimes when he was working some co-author, tended to be fairly low-brow theory, but he understood the usefulness of, of theory and even of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, what could look like fairly intricate theory. You know? And I, I remember discussing with him uh, some of our colleagues at the time when I was chair, when, when he was chair and we were talking about how to keep or how to hire people, and the admiration he showed to people that you could think, I kind of far for him, Lars is an example. You know, Gary has always been a big fan of Lars, and that's an example of somebody that, you know, Gary obviously understood what that was about and how important that work was and how, how, how many insights that brought to economics, even though he couldn't go in, into, you know, Lars's proof of why, how GMM works, something like this, you know? That's, that's a different question, that he had his appreciation. That's something I really had always admired very much about Gary and his support. I mean, he always been somebody who encouraged, I share students with him, I share courses with him. Sharing a course with Gary was a great experience, even though, you know, we taught separately, and, you know, I kind of, we were aware of each other, and the interesting thing is writing the exam. Because the exam we wrote together and the core exam. And we had a lot of discussions. You write these questions, sometimes I don't either, didn't really understand them. And I'll write some questions, you really understand them. But the exam would not be finished until we both decided that we really understood what each other wanted. And that was a great experience. That was, and Sherman Rosen participated a lot on those. You know, he was part of that group. Sherman, of course, was more technical than Gary to a certain extent. And you know, we worked together with Sherwin. But Sherwin was another one who gave me like an enormous, you know, I knew Sherwin, he was my teacher at Rochester. So I met him at Rochester. And then when I came to Chicago, he came to Chicago a couple of years later. Sherwin was a very, very, somebody I miss a lot. Yeah, I mean, obviously we'll miss them both. And, and now I wanted to just ask a little bit. Last year, Lars Hansen won uh, the uh, um, Nobel. And yes. I know he's a longtime friend and sure. colleague of yours. And any, any, just a couple words about what that meant to you when Lars yes. won the Yes. The First Nobel? of all, it wasn't a surprise that Lars won the Nobel. It's somebody who has, has, has many, many contributions. You know, he won the Nobel in a particular context. You know, I would say as a financial economist, that's the way they describe the prize and so on. You could as well have given Lars share one of the prizes where they awarded uh, to macroeconomists, one that they awarded to time series econometricians. <laughs> There's a lot of parts there that you could have Lars into that. So Lars is one of these guys, but Lars is another one. He's somebody, you know, this, you know, we talk about people of our earlier generation, you know, Bob Lucas, of course, and Gary, and, and Sherwin, and then, the, but, there's another generation that came later. You know, always people thought that this would be like the last great generation of Chicago. And then you have guys like Jim Heckman and Lars Hansen, you say, that's another amazing generation of people, you know, who are here in Chicago. So it's a, it's a continuing thing. And then the younger people like you. And so, so there's a whole, the, the, this department seems to be able to renew itself. I have to tell you a story. When I got my offer from Chicago, it was a kind of peculiar time. You're still at Milton Friedman, who was here already. Uh, had, of course, we're still here. But a lot of people left. A lot of kind of well-known people on the faculty left at that time. You know, Mark Nolov left at that time. Um, there were other people who left. People were considered very eminent. They kind of, Bob Fogel went to Harvard the next year and so on. And some people commented to me, well, that was, that was the end of Chicago. It was this great generation, 
And, uh, but that generation was the last one being Stigler. And nobody took Gary that seriously at the time. You have to understand, Gary was doing his own work. Kind of funny, you look at it the world that way today. It's funny, right? Yeah, but if you think about it, you know, uh, Gary, people would say, oh, Gary's like doing stuff which is not really economics, okay? And then, of course, Bob Lucas came, and Sherwin came, and you had a whole new generation of people were like amazing, you know? And I only talk about the department, the business schools have its own great people. I'm not, I'm not talking about people like Mert Miller and, and Jim Fama and so on. So I'm talking about the people here in the economics department, there in the economics department. And then, after the other race, you have guys like Jim, and guys like Lars, and that, that thing continues. So I think that, uh, that uh, that's remarkable about Chicago, how they've been able to renew and attract people of that quality and give people, I think that Lars would have been a great economist no matter where, Jim would have been a great economist no matter where, but they are better because they were at Chicago. Well, that, that's a great place to, for us to stop. That was, that was just fantastic, Joseph. I, I really it. appreciate it, and I'm sure our audience will as well. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.